So I'm going to start knowing that the housekeeping stuff is going to take a few minutes and then I think some folks might be trickling in. So this, my little notes here says, I am Judy Langhans. <laughs> she wrote this up. <laughs> so I'm Deb Hastings. I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So welcome. Um, good to see folks here. And um, I guess I can't see them now, but welcome to folks from Littleton who are watching us live. We're happy to have you here. And for those who are watching from their home or office computers, thanks for joining us. Um, this is our annual um, Grand Rounds in uh, Recognition of Sexual Assault Awareness Month, which is every April. Um, hence our invited guest, Linda Douglas, who will tell you a little bit more about in a few minutes. Um, so housekeeping. Um, be sure, those of you who are here, to sign the attendance sheet so that we can be sure um, that we have your name so we can get you your appropriate credit. And you must be here for at least 80% of the program to receive credit. For those of you who are viewing online or at Littleton, if you do have any questions during the presentation, if you could email Judy Langhans, Judith M as in Mary Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org, she, she'll check her emails prior to the end of the presentation, and if there are any questions, we can give them to Linda at that time. Okay. We also need, let's see, you also need to email Judy and let her know um, your name, your degree, your zip code, um, and then she can register you as well for your attendance. Um, po after this presentation, everyone will receive a link to an online evaluation form, um, and we would appreciate it if you could complete that um, because we do pay attention to all of the feedback we receive from our um, nursing grand round sessions. Uh, your contact hour will be posted to your timeline, uh, will be posted to your transcript, transcript within a month. And there are instructions online on how to access your transcripts. Or you can call our office and we can help you, uh, Center for Continuing Education in the Health Sciences. And finally, please silence your cell phones and pagers. So our presentation today is the impact of the trauma of sexual assault. Hi. Um, and our speaker is Linda Douglas. And Linda's been here for five years, you said, and I have heard so many wonderful things about you and the work you've done since you came to work for the New Hampshire Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. So I'm thrilled that you were able to join us here today. And she will be coming again in October for another session related to the trauma effects of domestic violence. Um, so um, in addition to providing a lot of training and consultation to domestic violence sexual assault support services uh, programs in the state, Linda also provides training to DCYF, Department of Homeless Services. I know you've done presentations for the annual conference put on by the Attorney General's office, and I suspect many, many more. Um, this is an important topic, and I think we continue to learn more and more about it. Um, so Linda has her master's in education and counseling from Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. And I was saying it's an area that I love and I can't quite imagine why one would leave it, except when you have grandchildren in New Hampshire. That probably has a lot to do with, with the move. So we're, again, we're happy to have you. Um, so she, Linda has worked in the area of substance abuse and domestic violence since the, the mid-90s when she coordinated the implementation of the Women in Recovery Program for the YWCA of Southampton Roads. Linda's an experienced presenter who speaks often on the topics of childhood, uh, children, trauma, resiliency, and attachment, 
substance abuse and trauma, and mental health issues and the effects of trauma. Um, we want you to know that neither our speaker nor anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity um, or any conflict of interest regarding the activity, and no one refused to disclose. So, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Linda. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, today I'm going to be talking about the impact of the trauma of sexual assault. And there we go. And I'm going to be talking primarily from the adult perspective. However, I will be bringing in a little bit about what happens to people when they've experienced childhood sexual assault. So it's, it's across the lifespan, but primarily focusing on what happens with adults. So trauma. We know that trauma can be either an event or a series of events, but it's overwhelming. And I've got that pic the picture up there, there we go, of this thing. And that is a Jenga tower. And when I think of trauma and a person, I often think of that Jenga tower, that when we pull it out of the box to play with our family, it's in a nice tight tower, and the blocks are all fairly stable, and things are gonna happen to start knocking that down. And so just like trauma comes along and starts knocking out some of the underpinnings to our own physical and emotional and psychological integrity, it's this, it can be reflected in what we see in that Jenga tower. So when you start pulling out those little blocks, the tower gets a little bit more unstable. You pull out a couple of big blocks and eventually the whole thing falls down. And when we're working with someone we have no idea where they are in this process. They could walk in for services with you and they could be at the point where their structural integrity is still pretty solid. Or the event that they're coming to see you about could be the one thing that's getting ready to knock over that tower. And so we can't always tell by the reactions that they're having but something may happen that will give us a clue that what they've been through is a lot of complex, complex trauma throughout their lifespan. So here we have the brain, and for those of you that are online or watching remotely, I'm gonna use the little arrow to point things out here. So, and I know I'm talking to medical personnel, so I have to be really careful that I label everything right. I get really nervous about this part. So we know that the brain develops from the bottom up and the inside out, and that the pieces of the, the brain that we need first are the parts that develop. So we start down here with the cerebellum and the spinal cord, and then this part here in the middle is the emotional center of the brain, and that starts to develop early in in childhood. And then we have the prefrontal cortex up through here that is developing all along. However, it doesn't finish developing until we're in our late teens and our late, no, late 20s. So up until that point, we're operating prim primarily from this region right here. In fact, I've been seeing a whole lot of research lately on adolescent brains, and it seems like they're really just operating from right down in this area right here. So this is the emotional center of the brain. 
I also call it the doing center of the brain. And then the prefrontal cortex is the thinking part of the brain. So then the parts that are um, important when we're talking about trauma, I lost my little arrow. Oops, things are getting away from me. Are the thalamus, the amygdala, and the prefrontal cortex. And remembering that at certain parts of a person's development, this prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. So what happens, and I'm, I like to thank Rebecca Campbell for this slide, I stole it from her. Ooh, things are happening by themselves here. So, stop that, I'm not gonna touch anything for a minute. So, what we have happening is that trigger happens, and I like, say you're driving down a residential area in your neighborhood, and all of a sudden, a soccer ball comes bouncing out between a few cars. The first thing you're going to do is what? Slam on the brake. And so that's the message coming from hitting the, the thalamus, which I see like a dispatcher, that sends the message over to the amygdala as quickly as possible because the amygdala is going to send out that, that message that we need to step on the brake, which is part of the fight, flight, or freeze response. So our palms start to get sweaty, our heart starts to beat, we may get a little fuzzy in the head. There's just all sorts of reactions that we're having to this. Just slightly slower, there's a message going out to the prefrontal cortex that says, I need you to think about this, but let me act first. So that's what's happening whenever a trauma incident occurs. Then when things calm down, you see this parent come out, make sure there's no children running around, everything seems to be safe. Then what happens is the message comes from the prefrontal cortex saying, this is no longer a threat and everything calms back down again, okay? However, if somebody has been experiencing a lot of trauma throughout their lifespan, the message in the top part of this diagram, this part gets sort of cut off. So if, so everything that's happening in the brain is primarily happening in the amygdala or the hippocampal region because the fight, flight, or freeze response will stay engaged. It's like the brain says, this person is in danger all of the time, so I have to stay alert. The problem with that is what happens if that then the prefrontal cortex is shut down is that the person's not able to do the things that that prefrontal cortex is in charge of which is planning for the future, making decisions, thinking things out logically. So they're stuck in that emotional center of their body for a long time. And if this starts out in early childhood, that prefrontal cortex isn't gonna develop as well. They're primarily going to develop skills around keeping safe and surviving in a scary world, or um, they're gonna be very emotional and have a lot of those trauma responses, which I'm gonna talk about in a minute. So the, the body is releasing adrenaline in order to engage that fight or flight response, cortisol in order to get the energy underneath that, natural opiates for the physical and emotional pain. I think about I had a car accident just about a year ago and I didn't start feeling the pain for a couple of days because of the natural opiates that had been released in my body. 
And then there's some oxytocin that comes out that helps manage some of the feelings that are going out. So there's somewhat of a little bit of high to this. But the problem is, is that these chemicals are spinning around the body and the brain and your brain is sort of like in a chemical stew. And what you end up with are what I call the fractured memories and poor recall. And this is something that we see with trauma survivors a lot. And so the memories of the event get dispersed throughout the brain. What the person saw goes to one section of the brain, the colors to another, what they smelled. So this all gets spread out throughout the brain. And so the event is very difficult to recall because it's as if the event is a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle that get dump, gets dumped in a bucket and that bucket gets shaken. And then another event happens and the pieces go in and it gets shaken. And then when someone comes along who needs to have that story, like a police officer or medical personnel or an advocate or someone, they come along and they need to hear the story where we make the mistake sometimes is we say to the person, I need you to tell me what happened. Please start at the beginning and don't leave anything out. So that stress response is going to get engaged, particularly if it's a person in uniform and or somebody who's in some perceived position of authority. Those stress hormones are going to come up and it's going to make it even more difficult to pull out those puzzle pieces because what you're asking the person to do is to reach into that bucket and say, pull out the puzzle for with the picture of Mount Washington on it, and I want you to start in the upper left-hand corner and work your way across and don't leave any puzzle pieces out. And again, the person is starting to stress out because they know that they can't do that. And where a person can get re-victimized through this is when somebody expects them to be able to tell the story. Or if after a few days when the person is, has been able to get some sleep and things have calmed down, and they're rested, some of those pieces might start floating to the surface and the victim may call and say, now I remember a few things what happened. And what I've heard stories of is some people saying, now she's making it up as she goes along or she's talked to some people and she's changing her story. But we all have times in our life when we're stressed out, when we can't remember something, but later on in the day when we're home, and we're not doing anything, all of a sudden it just pops in our brain. And that's what this is like for people. They have to be safe and stable in order to be remember everything that happened. And a lot of times there are pieces that are never going to come to the surface, okay? Another thing that happens, we have the fight response. So somebody will fight back. They'll have the flee response where they take off, the freeze response, there's also in sexual assault, there's what we call the submit response, where it's sort of like this is happening. There's nothing I can do about it. This person has power over me. I'm just going to submit. But this is a reaction that people can have, and it's called tonic immobility. And it can be somewhat of a paralysis or even a catatonic stupor that occurs during the assault. And it's reported to happening in a third to a half of rape survivors. And for 10% of those, there's really severe immobility. It's just the inability to be able to move. And it comes on quickly. They can't call out. 
they're numb, they feel cold, and they're going to just have staring or closed eyes. They know what's going on, and they may feel themselves in another part of the room or above themselves watching what's happening, watching what's happening. And it's usually associated with fear of losing their life or that they're going to be physically restrained. What this does, though, is it increases the likelihood of PTSD. And it, it, the tonic immobility itself ends up being part of the trauma. So can you, if you could just imagine someone who has had that happen, they're now going to be afraid that, is this going to happen to me again? And the problem is, is that it's a part of the polyvagal system of the body. And once that gets triggered and it happens, that may be the body's go-to response under future stress. So the reality of this happening, again, is very real to someone once it has happened to them. So then there's the possibility that those people who are trying to prosecute or defense attorneys are going to use that against a person and saying, you know, she didn't call out, she didn't move, she didn't fight back. So the more people know about the tonic immobility, the better, so that we can explain that this is a natural response to extreme stress, particularly in people who are feared, fearful for their life and who are fear, fearful of this even happening again. So this could even happen to someone when she's on the stand or it could happen to someone who comes in for a routine medical exam, a gynecological exam that they've had after they've been sexually assaulted previously. So very important to remember. So symptoms, you know, I like the adapt, adaptational framework. Symptoms are just best thought of as attempts to adapt to the trauma and its effects. And sometimes we see some of these symptoms as being, well, some of the words that I've heard is the person's just being noncompliant with treatment, they're not showing up, they're resistant, but those are actually things that the person's doing in order to be able to protect themselves from being reminded of the trauma or having to engage in a system that could re-victimize them. So if they start becoming phobic about things, it's a, it's, they're trying to reestablish safety and they just may be avoiding things to just maintain their stability and, and to keep from being stressed out. Um, and they're fearful that if they re-experience some of the things that happened to the trauma, that it means that they're not getting any better. Okay. So some of the, you know, you can read some of these, but I just want to uh, talk about a few of them. Uh, the numbness, the cognitive and behavioral disorganization, that's that with the puzzle pieces that I'm talking about, the fragmented me memories, not being able to think much about what they're going to be doing the next day or even the next week. They may just focus on one detail that happened. They're just caught on that and they can't move beyond that. And a lot of these other things I'm going to be talking about over the next few slides. So not feeling like oneself. One of the things that happens, this is probably on a future slide, but I want to talk about it now, is that's most intense for the sexual assault survivor is that they're going to start mourning the person they would have been 
if the sexual assault had never occurred. So there's a grief reaction that comes in on this too. And so you can see that on some of these initial reactions where that grief process is starting to happen because they no longer feel like the same person that they were before. And given the circumstances that may occur after the sexual assault, it can take over their life. And so it changes everything for them. So there is that loss of that person that they were before. So the recovery for some people is, to, is occurs naturally in the first two to six weeks, but those who do not show steady improvement during this period are really at risk for more chronic problems. So some red flags that you may see are the intense distress that continues for weeks after the assault. They can't use, they're isolating. They don't use their social supports. They can't soothe themselves in positive ways. They start using harmful coping strategies such as drinking, using drugs, um, isolating. I'm going to talk about a few more like self-harm. There's going to be that self-condemnation and self-blame, trying to rerun through everything that happened to try and figure out what could I have done differently? What shouldn't have I, have I done? You know, should I have called out? Should I have not gotten drunk? All of those things that we hear also from society about sexual assault victims, then the sexual assault victim is internalizing that and using that as a way to also self-blame. And if there were other vulnerabilities that the person had, so if they had some sort of pre-existing mental health issue or physical health issue, that's going to get exasperated through the whole thing. So we hear a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder, so I'm not going to go through too much of this, but it includes the flashbacks. That's where just that flooding of feeling like the event is happening all over again, and it can come in awake periods or it comes in sleep periods. And there's avoidance that's there just trying to escape anything that's going to remind them of the trauma. And so that's when you see people not wanting to go to wherever the place was. A lot of people leave school if that's where it happened. They'll leave their job. They won't go anywhere near what happened. They may not even leave their home at all. And they're just going to shut down. There's going to be the depression, the feelings of guilt, and um, just really not able to feel much. Then there's hyperarousal. Um, that's just the difficulty concentrating. They may or they may fall asleep, be startled easily. They're going to be on edge, and it can just really make it difficult for people who have PTSD to be able to complete their, their do their daily life. Things just start to fall apart around them which is more pieces out of that Jenga tower that I talked about earlier is starting to come loose. So the person could have a fairly solid structural integrity as far as their psychological, physical, and emotional life, but once the sexual assault occurs, it's not just that event that's going to knock off some of that um, structural integrity. It's all of the events that happen afterward are also going to increase the person's likelihood to suffer from the effects of the sexual assault. Children and teens are going to have some different symptoms. It could be bedwetting and inability to talk. Um, they could become unusually clingy or they're going to act out the assault during their playtime. 
children are going to regress in their development. So that's when you'll see the bedwetting, a small child who's learned how to walk or knows her ABCs or has gone to school and learned how to write and all of those types of things, she could actually regress after a sexual assault as a child. Um, compared to other traumatic events, rape is particularly likely to lead to PTSD. Among civilians, 14% of men and 31% of women who've experienced sexual assault subsequently develop PTSD. And they, this says that rates of PTSD among rape victims and heavy combat veterans are similar. But some of the numbers that I've been hearing recently is that for those people who are sexually assaulted in the military, their rates of PTSD are higher than combat veterans who did not experience sexual assault in the military. So, which I think is part of the intimate nature of the sexual assault, that people in the military are being sexually assaulted by persons who are supposed to be there to protect them, who are um, part of their uh, team and they work together and then, or somebody who's in authority and they're supposed to feel protected by this person and then they're sexually assaulted by them. So we're gonna see a, some substance abuse in victims of sexual assault. And if you think about, about it, if they're living in that emotional center of that brain and all of those chemicals are stewing around in their body, they're looking for ways to calm that down. And so self-medication is a part of that. One of the things I, you know, I'm a substance abuse counselor also in addition to the other things that I do, and I talked to a young man once who was in his mid-20s. He was having difficulties talking about his childhood. And he was, he was an heroin addict who had managed to stop using heroin and was now using marijuana medicinally, like every four hours smoking a joint. And he says, I'm not addicted to the heroin and the marijuana. What I'm addicted to is not feeling my feelings. So substances are a go-to for someone who's trying to calm down that response in their brain. So, you know, here are some warning signs of substance abuse. They may give up some activities, uh, forgetfulness, disappearing money or valuables, drinking and driving or getting into trouble with the law. One thing I've always said, though, is that a DUI does not necessarily mean you have a problem, but not having a DUI doesn't mean that you don't have a problem. Um, so there's going to be a number of things that go along with substance abuse. And we also know, well, we know it's a poor coping strategy. It's going to impair their ability to process the trauma, so they're going to continually want more because every time they talk about it, they're going to get triggered, and so they're going to want to calm down the process. It has its own legacy of destruction. It increases contact with risky peer groups, and it increases the risk of additional victimization. So often when I talk to women who are using substances who are, are either um, sexual assault victims or victims of domestic violence or both, I come at it from a... What can we do to help you learn other coping strategies so that you can eventually let this one go? Or um, 
how can we work on a safety plan so that if you do choose to use that you can be safe while you're using so it really is recognizing that this is yes it's harmful and there's a lot of long-term consequences for someone who's using substances but this is also probably at this point until they get additional help the only thing that they feel is going to be able to help calm down that trauma response that's occurring in their brain so they should be warned to monitor their use um, warned about the possibility for re-victimization, and know that there's probably going to be more problems post-trauma. It's just going to delay the healing process. So I like to talk about self-harm and self-injury because this is something that we see in a lot of sexual assault survivors, primarily in um, sexual assault survivors who were assaulted as children. It's that deliberate self-harm or self-injury that a lot, I've, I've seen this change over the past few years, but there used to be that thought that someone who is cutting themselves is making a suicidal gesture. But now that we know that for a lot of people, what they're doing is when they're cutting, they're trying to change that the way that they feel. And the and if they're feeling suicidal, the cutting itself could possibly stop them from wanting to kill themselves because it changes the way that they feel. Um, it's a temporary relief and not and we know it's not a healthy one because it can cause permanent damage as long as and psychological problems um, causes guilt depression and self-hatred and along with some isolation because they don't like to talk about what's going on um, it, they just believe that it helps them cope with their experiences and their emotions it provides a way to express some of those difficult or hidden feelings Usually, they're doing it for one of two reasons. For someone who has a tendency to numb out and become disconnected and dissociate, they will say that the self-harm brings them back and out of that. It helps to reground, to uh, bring them out of that sort of dissociative state. For other people whose trauma causes them to be that hyperarousal state, what I call a state of activation, where they're all over the place, that at that point, when they self-harm, it helps ground them and bring them back out of that state and helps calm them down. So there's really two things that can happen. And if you talk to someone who self-harms, that person can usually tell you which one of those things it does for them, okay? So it provides that distraction from emotional pain. They may also be doing it because it's a form of self-punishment for what they think they deserve, that they deserve this pain. And one of the things that's frustrating for me doing this work is that some people have said in the past to me that people who self-harm are just trying to get attention. One of the things that's really important to remember that people who self-harm are hurting. They have a lot of internal pain, and one of the reasons that they do it is because that pain hasn't been validated by people who are supposed to care about them. And so when they're doing that, yes, they're looking for attention, but it's basically to say, I need you to know how much I'm hurting on the inside, so I have to show you something on the outside that reflects how I'm feeling on the inside. So when we don't pay attention to that, we are again invalidating the pain that they feel. 
So a lot of times, as long as I know the person is safe, is safe, you know, first I'll say, are you safe? Did you cut too deep? You know, do you need to get some help? Do you have bandages? Whatever. And then I'll say, tell me about the pain that caused you to want to do that, so that I'm no longer paying attention to the actual physical act, but saying, I want you to tell me about the pain. Because if we even go back to talking about substance abuse, over the years, I've worked with a lot of women in substance abuse facilities and shelters who were experiencing a lot of pain because of the sexual assaults that occurred to them when they were children. And the one person that they were most angry with was not the perpetrator. It was the caretaking parent who did not believe them. That they'll express the anger towards primarily the mother who may have brushed it off, didn't want to hear it, told them that didn't happen, or continue to put them in unsafe relationships. So self-harm has become a way for them to be able to cope with that particular pain. So depression is definitely um, one of the after effects of sexual assault. And I think one of the real important things to take a look at here uh, there's quite a bit up here, but you're going to see people who have those unexplained aches and pains that they're not going to be able to necessarily, you're not going to be able to find a definitive cause of, but it could relate back to the trauma that they experienced. But they're going to have those recurring thoughts of death or suicide. And I sort of, the way I put it is that the thought of suicide for someone who experienced who's experienced a lot of trauma is there is a coping mechanism for them that they may not choose to act on, but they just want to know that it's an option. They have, it's, it's like something that they just keep in their back pocket and just so that they can have something that they can say, if things get any worse for me, I want to know I have this option, okay? And they manage to have a lot of resilience and be able to make through every, everything and they may not um, commit suicide or try to commit suicide, but they just want to know that it's an option. So I, enc I encourage people to talk, to talk about that with the therapist, but I also don't want to say things to them like, oh, you don't want to do that or things are gonna get better, or all of this, because those are things that they're not going to believe, but they need to, they just want to know that they need, they can talk about it without people freaking out about it. Same thing with the self-harm, okay? You wanna do everything that you always do, determine whether or not the person has a plan and whether or not they're safe. But a lot of times you're just gonna have people who are saying, I just like to know that this is an option. You know, well, they may not put it in quite those way, Often it's more of, I'll say to them, are you hoping when you leave here today and you walk out into the street that a truck comes up and swerves and hits you? Or are you going to step out in front of that truck? And they say, well, I wouldn't be upset if it hit me, but I'm not going to step in front of it. So it's sort of that type of reaction. There's going to be sleep disorders. And it may, what it says on here, replicate the original dangerous or threatening situation. A lot of sexual assault survivors are raped when they're sleeping, okay? And so they're going to have, when that 
trauma response in the body is not going to be able to necessarily differentiate between what is safe sleep and what is dangerous sleep. All it's going to know is I'm falling asleep. One time when I fell asleep, I got assaulted, so I'm not going to let myself fall asleep anymore. So I see this with a lot of people who come in and say, I'm up all night. I can't fall asleep. And it has, and when we go back and we piece apart what's happened to them, we find out that the sexual assault happened. I talked to one girl one time who said that every time she started to fall asleep, she would start to lose her breath. And it was because the assailant had taken, and this is something that a lot of perpetrators are doing these days, putting his arm over her throat so that she couldn't breathe, and then he would sexually assault her. So she was reliving that every single time she started to fall asleep. So they're going to have the nightmares, and so they're going to wake up a lot during the night. And so that contributes to the sleep disorder that they have. Um, so just a lot of fear and anxiety about sleep. They're not getting restful sleep. And this could be something that can be related to, for an adult, to a childhood sexual assault, and they may not even be able to make that connection. So I think it's important here that just to remember that these triggers that can happen to someone who's been sexually assaulted can happen throughout the lifespan. They can calm down for a while and not be there for a while if the person's feeling safe and secure. But if something happens that can re-trigger that and the person will start feeling some of these effects again, but they're gonna wonder, why? Why am I feeling this way? And unless they really piece it down with a good therapist or somebody that they can talk to and be able to relate it back to something that happened to them in childhood, they may not be able to make that connection. So um, there's no time limit or on how long it could be before somebody's not going to have any after effects of a sexual assault or other traumatic event that happens in childhood. So there can be insomnia. I talked a little about the sleep terror disorder. That's just that um, waking up with the panicky feeling, the scream, the cry, and they're just having a lot of the intense fear and find it very difficult to awaken, and it's very difficult for them to comfort themselves. Eating disorders. Not all eating disorders are related to sexual assault or child abuse, but there are a lot of people who have eating disorders who have been sexually assaulted. So that relates to low self-esteem, feelings of inadequacy, depression, anger, difficulty expressing emotions and feelings. So this could be anything from bulimia to anorexia, the combination of the both, or anything else that can fall into that. Um, I think I even throw exercise bulimia in there. I know I never. I know some people have not really said that that's a disorder, but I've seen it plenty enough to know that it is a disorder. So, body memories are when. Well, let me put it to you this way: Bessel van der Kolk, who is down in Boston, who's done a lot of work on trauma, he talks about how the body holds the memories of the event in the body cells. And the, um, this is why there are so many things happening in the body that can't be explained by usual means. And it has to do with the connection between what happened 
traumatically in the brain and what's going on in the body. So there's going to be these some somatic memories such as headaches, migraines, stomach problems, lightheaded and dizziness, hot and cold flashes, graining of teeth, and the sleep disorders. And that's why the person can't necessarily relate what's going on with them physically to a real event is because those memories are just living in the body and not necessarily in the mind. Okay. We know now, we used to think that ch small children before the age of two didn't have any memory of what had happened to them. Now we know that those memories are living in the cells of their bodies and that when they get old enough to be able to express what happened to them, they're able to do so or they're going to be triggered in a lot of ways. And I usually, I, uh, this is one of my own personal stories. I was burned significantly when I was 15 months old and I had pulled a cup of hot coffee off the counter and it hit me on my neck. And by the time we got to the hospital, I had started to go into shock and my throat had closed up and the doctor there was able to intubate me so that I could breathe. So that, I don't have any memory of that event. It happened at 15 months old on the 4th of July. Everything I know about that event has been told to me by my parents. I do remember though, when I was five years old, my mother had bought a pullover red hooded sweatshirt that she went to put on me and it got stuck right here and I'm inside the sweatshirt and I can't breathe. And I have a complete and total scary meltdown, which was unusual for me. And so she took it off and didn't say anything. And then a week later, she tried it again and the same, very same thing happened. And my mother was my very first trauma teacher because she took that off my head and she said, this must have to do with when you were burned. And so it was my body, my little five-year-old body reacting to the feeling of not being able to breathe. And my body was saying, we're in danger again. And so I need to let people know that I'm in danger. So that's just an example of how these memories can live in the body. And so it also leads to people having more difficulties around anniversary dates. So for instance, I used to get very, until I realized what was happening, I would get very depressed during the month of July until we managed to put it back to the realization that this event had happened on the 4th of July. But for a lot of people, they're not able to put that two and two together. So sometimes that's what's going on. Dissociation is that just that process where somebody shuts down um, and what they're feeling is going to be separate from their immediate reality. I always like to say, when I'm giving a presentation, I know that everybody in the room has dissociated at least once during my presentation. Doesn't bother me because I know it's going to happen. You just sort of shut down. You're thinking about what you're going to be doing later. You're wondering how much longer I'm going to talk. You're just dissociating in a mild way. Some people, however, when they're reminded of the event are going to move along that continuum and they're going to dissociate in a more dramatic manner where someone explained it to me once. It's like my computer shuts down and a screensaver comes up. I'm just not here. Okay. I talked to a woman once who was sitting in the chair across from me and she says, when I tell you about what happened to me, I feel like I'm actually sitting in a chair across the room watching myself 
tell you the story because if I don't leave my body to do that, then I'm going to feel all of the emotions. So that's another form of dissociation. And then if we move all the way along the continuum, it can actually go into dissociative identity disorder where the, the brain, the person may fragment out into different ego states or personalities. So what happens is this is usually something that starts in a young child back when their brain hasn't fully developed in order to be able to make meaning out of the event. Their prefrontal cortex is not able to process this. So in order to be able to manage what's going on with the event as it's occurring, that child learns to dissociate. It's a survival skill. However, when it gets taken through into adulthood, it can really impair the person's ability to be able to function in the real world because they never know when they're going to shut down. And you can be working with somebody and all of a sudden it's like they're sitting there, but they're not really there. And this can, they don't know when it's going to happen. It can happen at work. It can happen while they're driving. And they may say to you, I don't remember what I was doing for the past few hours or what was it you were just talking about because I can't remember. Or they're telling you the story of what happened to them, but then later on they don't remember telling you the story of what happened to them. So you can see dissociation in a number of different ways. I already talked about flashbacks earlier, so, but just a reminder that flashbacks are different from dissociation. It, it's just they're triggered by, oh, I knew a woman once who would get triggered by this, the sound of the uh, hydraulic brakes on a semi as it was coming down the hill near her house because her perpetrator drove truck. And so whenever she would hear that, that would cause a flashback for her and she would feel like the things were happening all over again to her. So it can be you, you know, pretty much anything. And those triggers can change over time. And depending on how much that person is taking care of themselves and how much support they're getting, their immunity to the flashback or the dissociation even on one day may be different from another. So a person could be able to drive by someplace where it occurred. Like I think, did I mention I had a car accident? Yeah, I know I mentioned I had a car accident. So we're coming up on a year and this morning, I drove up to that intersection and I could just feel my body start to tense up because it's of course a half a block away from where I work. So I have to go through it. So there's some days I'm feeling good and I can get through it without a problem. And other days, if I'm really tired, it's more, it's more difficult for me to get through that intersection without driving everybody behind me nuts because I'm slowing down and looking and making sure everybody's stopped. So we're going to see some high-risk behaviors in um, people. Young adults with at least one incident of forced sex during childhood are more likely to engage in high-risk behaviors than non-abused young people. They're four times more likely to engage in sex with strangers twice as likely to have multiple sexual partners. Females were twice as likely to become pregnant before the age of 18, and often twice as likely to contract HIV. So you can see the number of other um, health risks that could occur to a person who's been sexually assaulted. Um, sense of foreshortened future. I've mentioned all of the other ones, but the sense of foreshortened future, particularly this happens a lot with teens and people in um, their early 20s. You may see some older people with this, but this is 
this comes about, they're not able to really plan for the future because the traumatic events, sexual assaults, whatever, have made them believe that they're not long for this world anyway. So why should I even bother making plans for the future? Why should I go to school? Why should I plan on buying a house? I have been living in this situation for so long, I just can't see where I have a future that's worth even planning for. And so a number of things that you could see with someone is they're going to sabotage when they think start to go real well for them because they're fearful that if things start to go well, that's not going to feel good for them. And so they'll sabotage it so that it doesn't because they're more used to living with the pain and the fear and all of that. And sometimes feeling good can be a trigger for someone because if they were feeling really good on the day that the sexual assault happened and they start and they have a day when they feel good again, that can be a trigger. Okay? So if like if it was a birthday or a holiday and they were having a really good time and then the event happened. So this all ends up really overtaking their life. So what we need to know, rape can happen to anyone. Competent people, healthy, strong men and women are raped. It's not a sign of a personal or psychological weakness, and the symptoms that they have are normal. Because you can, if you think about all of those physiological responses to trauma that I explained, those are normal. Those are going to happen to people who've been traumatized. So it's really important to be able to normalize that for people. What we often say, it's not that there's something wrong with you, it's that something happened to you, and that thing was done to you by another person. So it's not your fault, and it's not because there's something wrong with you. So it helps them to know that this is a normal response, and that, that, they, and that they can get better, so that this long-lasting thing is just not an inevitable result of rape. Um, that this is treatable, and that they need to work on being able to handle current stressors, because current stressors can cause them to feel more vulnerable to the stress and vulnerabilities of previous stress, and that it's never too late to help. So I guess we need to know that we're going to see rape victims in highly vulnerable psychological states. So anything that can be done to separate them from a lot of distractions or inputs and noise and be able to calm down the environment um, helps them to be able to calm down. When Rebecca Campbell, who I alluded to earlier, when she does a trauma talk on the neurobiology of sexual assault, she does it for police officers, and she rec recommends to them that if you can just help a person get a cup of coffee and be able to just sit down with them for a few minutes and just be there with her before she starts to talk, she's going to feel safer with you than if you start in right away with a lot of questions. Um, just recognizing that you're going to see a lot of confusion, changeability, erratic behavior. She may be swearing or she may be shut down, but these are all for that person, normal responses to what's happened. So it's really important that she, the person feel safe and in control of the situation. Safety and stability is the first step to healing from trauma. So that's what needs to happen as quickly as possible. And then they need to know that they have that control and that they have support from the people around them. 
it's an ongoing process. It can spiral down and then the person can come back up again and then they're going to probably relapse on symptoms for a while. So it comes and it goes. They need to be able to repair some relationships in their lives because of behaviors that happened afterwards or they just need, may need to have a whole new life. So they're gonna have new meaning, new accomplishments. They need to feel empowered and be able to have that new life after the sexual assault that may not be better than the life that they're mourning that they thought they were gonna have before the sexual assault but it's a life that they can live with and they can feel empowered by, and it has enough good things happening in it that they can manage to survive. So there's gonna be enormous differences. So we need to respect the individual pathways and we need to respect the culture that they come from and how they're going to approach ways of healing because different cultures have different ways of healing. Um, and they're going to need to do some approaching and avoiding because they need to process and then you know talk about it and then go away and process it and then be able to come back. And um, sometimes when they don't want to talk about it, it's just because they have a need to get some sort of balance in their life and not spend all of the time working on it. So when somebody, I had somebody tell me once they went to a counselor and the counselor said, well, the way you're going to get over your trauma is I want you to go home and get out a notebook and I want you to write about the scene over and over and over and over again. And I told the person, get a new counselor, okay? Because the first thing you need to do is be able to learn some skills and, be, and how you're going to respond to all of the feelings that are coming up. So it's really about being able to do that and then telling the story and then having some healthy relationships. I think this is pretty repetitive. Um, just being able to tolerate the feelings that come up is, is the most important thing. And you have some references. And you want to check and see if there's any questions? And thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. I have a question. Sure. So, you know, it's been a struggle for healthcare providers to encourage people to screen for domestic violence at points of entry into the mm -hmm. healthcare system. How do you feel about screening for sexual assault? I think there would have to probably be some work on how that's done. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Um, I think screening for any sort of prior trauma is always a good idea, just with the recognition that that in itself could be triggering right. for the person. Right. So I don't think it's so much for sexual assault as it's important as just for any sort of any major, trauma. any, any major traumas. I'm just thinking of the long-term effects. You know, just yes. Like yeah, so not necessarily for the the injury or the initial trauma, but just the long-term physical effects that may be involved. Right. Yeah. I've heard of people in their 60s and 70s who suddenly have flashbacks and physical um, issues that can be related back to childhood trauma. Well, I can. So in, in the past, I used to work in in the operating room, and I can remember many times um, putting people into, uh, you know, sort of into stirrups or lithotomy position uh, for various um, procedures. And if, if anesthesia hadn't quite taken effect yet, I mean, there were very violent reactions to yes. that. And I mean, I don't know, in some situations I may have known, but most of the situ situations you don't know, we didn't screen for anything back then. 
But I suspect it was related to what may have happened earlier on. Um, so anyway, so I. Yep. I think a lot of health providers see reactions to trauma and may not necessarily recognize, recognize that's it. what's happening. Yep. So we have a question here. Is this the only one we have? What ideas do you have as healthy ways to deal with feelings related to trauma, to calm down the emotional part of the brain, and does the prefrontal cortex ever catch up when the brain experiences trauma after trauma? If the person, I'm going to answer the second part first, if the person gets into a place where they're safe and stable, the prefrontal cortex, is, the brain is able to develop new neurons and new in certain parts of the brain and be able to develop new healthier pathways. So there is the ability for the brain, the brain has a lot of resilience. And I didn't get into being able to talk a lot about resiliency today, but there is a lot of resiliency in, in people as long as they get the support and they're safe. Uh, healthy ways to deal with feelings related to trauma, there are a lot. We're finding out more and more that mindfulness meditation is a way, is good for some people. Yoga, some people need more active things like running and bicycling and working out. Um, but those are, you know, doing things. There are so many ways now that do not require pharmaceutical intervention for people to be able to learn how to calm down that trauma response. Being able to do creative things like playing music, doing artwork, those types of things are going to help a person be able to recover. Because not only does it, it help calm down what's happening in the brain, but it also helps the person develop some self-esteem and some competency around the things that they're doing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we all do. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess that's it. Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll go back there. I'll go with you in the new. So I guess I want to reiterate it just because for the people who are on the webinar and, and at Littleton is you're asking about how you can approach someone who comes in presenting with ulcers and maybe lacerations or other, other types of things happening in their labia or vaginal area that are not necessarily due to current sexual trauma, but the person is not attending to their care because of previous or both. 
that is you're at risk because the per you of the short time that you do have. So I'm not sure if you can do anything beyond just addressing the issue about self self care, and then hopefully at a later date be able to have a conversation about previous trauma, and then be able to refer them to a local sexual assault center or something like that. But given the amount of time that you have, I'm always concerned about what I call opening up the wounds and not having enough time to be able to close them back up again. So as a medical professional, it's sometimes best, if this is somebody that you're not going to see on an ongoing basis, is just to attend to the immediate needs. And then, but if, if it's somebody you're going to see on a regular basis, then find some time through the process because you're going to have to develop some safety and trust with the person before they're able to tell you about what's happening. So it's it's a process. It's not something that you can do in just you know a 15 minute appointment. But I understand your frustration. Would it be appropriate though at that point to make an appropriate referral to the local crisis center? Yes. It just. But the, the problem is, is that they're going to wonder why you're making that and there's going to be some stuff. But I think it's always good to give the person the information and just say, I have some concerns. You may want to talk to somebody at this program about things that have been going on with you. But and say, I'm just concerned that other stuff. But be aware that you could be opening up a door that would be difficult to deal with in the short period of time that you have. OK. of an expert on that okay. however um, so the question is is what about it is about a man doing the, the sexual assault a nurse examiner kit and my concern is always about giving the person the choice okay however in society the male has perceived power and control and even though the person may say it's okay for the man to do it, she may be saying it because of her fear or being because of the perceived power and control that you just have just by being a man. There may be, you know, since we know that children and adults can be per perpetrated upon by other people besides males. There may be time when your presence can be very comforting and they may want to have a man. So I feel like the choice should be there, but also with the recognition that because you're a man, they may feel like they have to say yes because of that. Some will just say, hell no, I don't want you in there. But I, I just feel like the choice should be there, but it should be informed on your end. You talked about uh, policemen and what you, like, you mm -hmm. said it in a way that that was a man. 
Yes. And offering the coffee and sitting and making it feel safe. That was something that triggered that question. Yes. Like, oh. Yeah, men can do this. It, the But I think with the intimacy of the sexual assault kit, that's another level of, of understanding, yeah. too. I think it, it, that's one thing we just have to be aware of is that um, just by your mere presence and the fact that you're a man, people are going to defer to you because of that. And I'm sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> it was it's different. almost like I'm guilty without ever having yes. anything. Yes. There's that little element of it that always catches me. Yeah. And it makes it difficult. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, you are, definitely. But I think it, it's just really important that, I mean, I, I really hate to say this. I, I would be concerned if you were the only person available to do the rape kit. So there should be, there should be enough choices available. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? You're great. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Linda, and thank you, everybody. I I think you're still there. Thanks for joining us. I think they're they're slowly and they're leaving. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs>